Hi everybody, it's Megan. Thanks for coming for this episode. This is a gorgeous one. We have Bethany Harvey who's going to talk to us about her memoir, Dipped in It. And it's really emotional. You know, one of those days where the tears are really at the surface and she lets us in and talks really openly about her experience of multiple losses that are happening at the same time, but particularly the loss of her father. Her writing is really gorgeous. Let me know if you want one of her books. DM me. Please remember afterwards to go over to Apple Podcasts, click on the show itself, scroll down. It will tell you to rate the show. And if you're enjoying it, just give us five stars. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. This is Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am here today with Bethany Harvey, who reached out to me to talk about her book, which I finished a couple of weeks ago. I read it, I think, in 72 hours, and it's called Dipped in It. It has a gorgeous cover, and it's incredibly readable because essentially it's a private peek into someone's journal. So I am welcoming you here today. Thanks so much for being here and thanks for your gorgeous writing and your really special book. Thank you so much. So let's jump right in. One thing that I will tell people also is that a great way to to learn about you and experience even just snippets of your book, which I've really enjoyed having already finished it, is in your social media presence. I think you do such a beautiful job of sharing bits and pieces and maybe I should have prepped you for this, but maybe I'll get you to read one of your favorite sections, but tell people about where the book came from, maybe even a little bit of this sort of story, if that's a fair word to to call it, and about what brought you to writing, because this is your debut memoir. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a different uh, way for the book to have come about. I never set out to write a book, actually, and I just had a series of personal events that happened over a short period of time, not necessarily negative things, but just things that caused a lot of upheaval in my life and a lot of things that I needed to adjust to. For example, going from being a stay-at-home mother to realizing we were, I needed to get a job basically (laughs) and um, starting my own business that kind of hit the ground running. So I went from being a stay-at-home mom to running a business with 10 to 12 full-time employees in a very short period of time. And I got divorced and my ex came out as transgender. And so there was an adjustment period there for my children and myself, and of course for her. And on the heels of kind of all of those adjustments, you know, moving out of my marital home that I thought I was gonna be living in for the rest of my life and uh, a lot of adjustments. So anyway, all of that was happening. And then I lost my father, my father suddenly. And it was, I was always the kind of person that looked on the bright side, found the silver lining, you know, just go forward. Everything will be fine. Even when I didn't think I was really fine, I would always say that I was fine. (laughs) And then when my father passed, I just bottomed out completely. And So after a couple of months, when I thought the grieving process was supposed to be over, right, we we kind of tell ourselves that there's an expiration date on that. And you're kind of, you know, looking at the calendar, okay, am I done with this yet? Three months, that's what people tell me. People tell me I think it takes three months. Yeah. And I think that's probably the timeline of when you feel the worst. Yeah, Because initially you're kind of in a state of shock. And then you're, there's a lot to do, particularly when your loss is a death. There's a, you know, there's a lot to do. And so you're busy and then you're not busy anymore. And suddenly here's all the feelings. And you're just, you're surrounded by all of these people dropping off meals, asking you all the time if you're okay, you know, so much support. And of course, you know, everybody means well, but after a period of time, you are expected to just go on with it as if your life hasn't been irreparably changed. And so I found myself always having been this very grateful person, feeling so incredibly ungrateful because I would just sit there and think to myself, how can I still be feeling this awful 
when I have these beautiful children, when I have this wonderful job that I love, when I have this beautiful house and this amazing extended family. And, you know, basically what's wrong with me that I'm not just looking at all of these wonderful things that I had to be grateful for. And I just was sick of my own company. I couldn't stand myself really. And so my solution to that was to go on to Facebook and tell everybody that I was going to write a gratitude post every day for a year. Mm. Not, not a week or a month, but yeah. a year, um, which my, you know, my closest friend found hilarious. She was, are you insane? And, you know, she could see that how the, the ridiculousness of the fact that I was in the deepest well, the worst place that I had ever been in my life. And I'm going to go and talk about all of these things that I'm grateful for. To me, it made sense because I thought if I can be grateful, then I won't have to grieve anymore. And I can just kind of skip over it. And so I started doing that. And I think it lasted about a week yeah. of the gratitude posts. And I just felt so um, disconnected from it and disingenuous and it was, you know, poetic or whatever, but it wasn't how I was really feeling. And so one day I just kind of took a deep breath and wrote how I really felt. And it was so interesting to see how much more deeply that resonated with people than me writing about the things that I was grateful for, because I think Facebook is always so glossy anyway. And to just write something real, I just want to climb out of my own skin and I just can't stand my own company. It really resonated for people. And so many people said, either commented on the post or, you know, side messaged me, which I'm sure happens to you too with your grief yeah. posts. But just saying... I have felt the way you're feeling, or I am feeling the way you're feeling. And thank you for putting into words for me. I've never really been able to articulate it. And so then I really did write for a year, but I just wrote about whatever I wanted to write about. And so some days it was a gratitude post, really in essence, but it was when that happened, it was when I was really feeling that. And there's a lot of humor, which is kind of a, an odd thing people keep telling me how much they laughed reading the book and it's sort of really I was not expecting really to funny. laugh a lot during during a book about your father having died <laughs> but it's it's just I think really the beauty of it is that I never set out to write a book about grieving so it really is just in the moment how it is it's a real roller coaster I think you would probably agree you know some days I felt I would was on the top of the world and could conquer anything. And the next day I would be just, you know, depressing my dog, but I just wrote what I, what I felt. And at the end of it, well, all throughout writing it, people kept saying to me, you should write a book. This is a book. And at the time I was just trying to keep my head above water and I couldn't really even think about that. But then at the end of time, I realized I really had written a book. So and it just felt, it felt the right thing to just see it through to the end and almost a gift to my dad. Oh man, I love that. And I, I remember you writing that somewhere. It might be in the very first pages, but you know, there, I, I thought a million things while you were talking, you referenced. <laughs> Sorry, I rambled on there. Oh, you did a gorgeous job of one thing that you said that was just sort of an aside that I, that I smiled at, you know, we're able to see each other we were smiling at each other is that notion that people DM when you're talking about grief. It's fascinating to me because I follow all kinds of people, people who are doing anti-racist work, people who are doing feminist work, you know, celebrities who are talking about their divorces. I follow all kinds of people. And it is so striking to me that, you know, I get 10 messages a day from maybe more, sometimes more, depending on what's going on in the world with really private stories. And part of the reason I run a grief writers workshop is, you know, it's really helpful for those stories to be shared, but our instinct is to keep it private. And I, I, I'm not sure what that is. I, I think it's a lot of things, but I think it's probably at its heart, the idea that we're still trying to, you know, keep grief kind of kept in a 
therapy office or in a corner or something. And part of what I loved about your book and, and it is really, really readable and, and you're a gorgeous writer. So I'm, I, I do, I'm going to put this over in the parking lot. I'm the one rambling, but, but I do want to know just sort of, was that a discovery to you? Did you already know you were, you know, good with words, but, but what I love about the book is that you do go from, you had a really good day the day before. And then this <laughs> is not, a, you know, today is not a good day when you, when you're on the page and it has that sort of journal format, but that is the truth. You know, I got a text from my sister yesterday that, and all it said was, it has not been a good mom day. And I wrote back to her and said, oh, I had that on Thursday. You know, what I've learned in my grief, in my personal grief, is that I just have to yield to that when it's not a good day. But I think, you know, I think your writing doesn't over-intellectualize it. It's we just get the snapshot that says this is the way that it is, which I think is really beautiful and therapeutic. And I think allows a lot of the me too component, but you did reference the humor and you do have just this gorgeous, it's not snarky, it's just honest humor that shows up. I think it's in the book somewhere. We were supposed to record a couple of weeks ago. So I read it a little while ago and then I pulled it out last night to sort of look at, some pages that I had dog-eared, what I was thinking about, what, what I was thinking about when I was reading it and when I was thinking about it when you were just talking just now is this concept of wanting to not feel the feelings, mm-hmm. right? This, this maybe belief that it's almost, it makes me think of Kate Bowler and the prosperity Bible. If you just do this, then you get the good reward, right? <laughs> if you just are grateful enough, you won't ever have to feel bad. Yeah. And I think gratitude in my experience is a bit grace and a bit forgiveness, which is it's a practice, Mm -hmm. meaning I don't always get to feel grateful, but if I spend some time in, in, and among the world of the thoughts of gratitude, there's a likelihood that I'm going to get there. Right. I can't feel forgiveness towards you until, but I can work towards that. And, and one of the things we talk about on this podcast all the time is that grief is work that you can't, it's not a grace. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't just get bestowed upon you that suddenly you know how to grieve. You got to figure it out. And I think, you know, your story is totally uniquely yours, but there's a lot of transition and loss in a very short span of time. And that's part of what you let us see. And, you know, the grief shows up in all kinds of ways, including humor. So tell me a little bit about the writing. Did you, did you used to be a writer, always liked to write, always kept a journal, or did this come out of nowhere for you? And you just discovered, you know, this works for me. Uh, I would say that I've always been a good writer. Uh, you know, when you just said that, I was thinking I've probably used it for more evil than good. Cause I'm thinking, you know, when I was in high school, I could get away with reading the first chapter and the last chapter of a book and then reading and writing this gorgeous paper about it and getting an A. But I never, uh, I wasn't a big journaler. When I've had topics that have really called to me, I've written about them. One of the stories that's in the book was about the loss of my cousin John to alcoholism. Yeah. And then another one is about, it was a letter that I wrote to my mother after I had gotten divorced and was grieving that. And both of those things I actually wrote before I started writing what ended up being dipped in it. But then I interwove them into the book because they really um, belonged there, I felt. But that's just a couple of examples of things that when I would sit down to write about something that I really felt, I knew I was quite good at it. You know, Mm -hmm. when I wrote that piece about my cousin, John, my uncle, who's been in AA for 55 years, I think at this point, gave it out to all the people in his AA meetings because he just felt it was so spot on and so important just about how the person who's dealing with the illness has to be the one to help themselves ultimately. And so, yeah, I was definitely not never a consistent writer, but when something really was important to me, I would write. I think I was always good at writing 
nice letters and cards and things, which of course, with the invention of all of this technology, I haven't done very much, but I, I would say my mother could probably pull out lots of letters and cards that I wrote, but no, never, never anything professionally. I did get into, actually, I did get into writing poetry for a little while post-college, I think when I was kind of in a dip. Yeah. <laughs> and, but that was mostly just for me. Yeah. And so I guess you could say that I've used words to work things out. That's not a new thing. Now that I'm saying all this, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, that makes sense. When I've had to process something, I've gone to writing, but it's I never funny. really thought of it that much. Someone asked me that question on a podcast a while ago. And so I use it. I, I ask it because my answer was, no, this is really the first time I've, I've written. And my best friend listened to the podcast and she was, so that was a lie. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, the poetry, you know, the terrible, ridiculous, snarky novel that you wrote about an ex-boyfriend. I was like, oh man, I forgot about all that stuff. Lock I mean, I think, I think partly because it, those things were more sort of artistic expressions of, of feelings, but they were not therapeutic sort of lifesavers in the same way mm -hmm. that, and, and so I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask when I'm doing my, my grief writing workshop, I'm intentionally giving people prompts. Well, if they're listening now, you know, now, you know, this is what I'm doing, but I'm intentionally giving them <laughs> This is behind the curtain, inside baseball, <laughs> you know, because my day job is as a trauma therapist. And so my intention in the grief prompts is to sort of help people progress with their story, to deepen into it. So today's prompt had to do with what were the physical ramifications to your body, you know, so that I, what I'm hoping people will do is just stop to pay attention to things that maybe they knew, but hadn't totally identified as part of their grief story. Right. And mm -hmm. one of the parts of the grief story is that your body takes a hit because your brain takes a hit because there's, you know, that we filter our experiences through our body. But part of the writing to me, the hope is coming to know your story a little bit better. And so one thing that I was interested in is it feels to me that more often than not, you're writing with a sense of compassion, both for yourself and particularly when you're writing about your marriage, mm -hmm. also your ex-partner. They're just, there's humor, but there is not vitriol. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wondered about that. Is that how it came out when you were writing it? Did you edit it? Did that change in the process? Is that, you know, do you feel that way now, but not on Thursdays? I'm just, I'm, I was curious about whether it was a progression for you. <laughs> Thursdays. <laughs> Does my question make sense? Yes. So I think with any relationship, we have our ups and downs. Yeah. And some of the things some of the things that are in the book that are about my marriage or my divorce or the process that we went through with her coming out were not in the daily writings that I did on social media. Sure. I didn't really write about her initially much at first. And then during the year, it was 2017, when I was writing it, we, it was that summer that there was all of the controversy I think the first round of controversy, I would say, or most recent of not allowing transgender people to use the bathroom with which they identify. And she and I just spoke about how it might be helpful for me to, because I had quite a few people following me at that point, and it might be helpful to personalize the experience of having a family member that was going through that. Because what I noticed was a lot of people who I think are, you know, generally kind, compassionate people were making jokes and, you know, making, making fun of the situation. And I felt that comes from fear or othering, you know, yeah, absolutely. and that if, they knew, hey, well, I know Bethany and actually she loves someone who is transgender and is part of their family. And this is what 
their experiences, it would bring it to a different perspective for people. So that's when I started to bring it into the writing. But even though I didn't write about it heavily or write about her heavily, I think mostly because all of the entries were about my daily life and we didn't really spend a lot of time together at that point. But I think more to your question about whether I went through it with a filter, I tried to be really honest. There were definitely a lot of things that happened in our relationship that I chose not to write about and that I've chosen to keep for, for us. And so I won't say that it's unfiltered, but what I wrote, I meant it. Yeah. And there definitely were times, you know, during the process of editing and getting this book out where I was really angry at her and I'd be like, I was too kind to her in that book. I, you know. <laughs> but then you get to the other side of that. And you're like, no, you know, kindness is the way you wrote when you wrote that, you meant that. And, you know, and then there's also our children to consider too. And they don't need to know about every up and down. And, and I think it's important for them to just know that the consistent bar is that there's love and respect. And yeah. So one of the things that you're talking about really beautifully, and, and my friend, the writer, Laura Perry talks about this also is the thing that I think writing as a tool as a grief tool. It, we have to be sort of respectful of this, which is there's writing from the wound right? Mm -hmm. There's writing from, and, and, and that is a certain kind of writing. And I think actually that kind of writing sometimes has real deep electricity in it that people can Mm -hmm. feel, but maybe is a little bit electricity. We don't know where it's going to zap. And then there's writing about the wound, which I think Mm -hmm. is more, you, you sort of do the overlay of strategic thinking and, and sort of cognition about And I think the reason, well, the reason I wanted to point it out and the reason I wanted to ask you about it is I think one of the biggest fears people have about writing from an emotional space. And again, every one of your pages has multiple emotional spaces on it, right? You're a mother and a business owner and someone who's, you know, recently gone back to work and you're an ex-partner and your dad dies. I mean, there's, it's on all of the pages, but I, but one of the things that people who are trying to write from an emotional space often ask is what if my writing is going to hurt someone? Mm -hmm. What if it's an invasion of somebody's privacy? What if, what if? Mm-hmm. And I think exactly what you just described, which is there are the things that you just don't need to write about, don't choose to write about. Mm-hmm. There are the things that you write and then you hold them for yourself as private and precious. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, the writings that are for you. And then there's the way that you choose to tell your story, mm-hmm. your story of grief and your story of loss and your story of transformation. And it sounds, you know, you were doing all of those things as you were doing the writing, maybe even without realizing that you were doing it which is really, really amazing. Was it, was it hard to write every day? Did you find, I mean, I get that you sort of threw down the gauntlet on that. Did you find that commitment hard to keep or did it become sort of a yoga ritual where it's okay, I'm in it now and I'm used to it and I'm. Yeah, I think one of the things that I realized after the fact because my publisher, uh, Brian Haynes, World Changers Media, I'll give her a little plug there. She interviewed me on the day that the book came out and she asked me, I don't remember exactly how she posed the question, but it brought me to this revelation that maybe the greatest gift in the process of writing the book for me was that it forced me to be awake and aware because I knew every day that I was going to write something. So instead of shoving down a feeling I was having, I let it come and I really noticed, how does this feel? And I paid more attention to other people as well. You know, I would be having a conversation with someone and they would say this little nugget and I would just like immediately think, that's what I'm going to write about today. Mm -hmm. And I was more aware of, my surroundings and just, it really taught me to pay attention because I would go through the day knowing 
I had to write about something. And there were, there were a few days when I didn't necessarily encounter something during that day that I felt I wanted to write about. And so on those days that that happened, I pulled out of my back pocket, choosing a loved one. And I would write about that person, what I loved about them. And yeah. sorry, I don't know why that just made me feel emotional, but that process of sitting and thinking about someone that you love and why you love them and what's special about them. And that was such a gift of appreciation for me to really think about how wonderful the people I have are. And I think a really get a nice gift to them that they felt mm. seen because these were things that I posted on, on social media. And some of them are in the book, not all of them are in the book because I felt if I kept veering off and writing about some other person, it would be too distracting in the whole flow of the book. So I really just kept the ones in there of people that I was talking about all the time mm. in the book. So you could kind of get to know those people a little bit better. But it really was just a, this beautiful practice of, of mindfulness and allowing whatever feelings were coming up for me that day to surface and then just really naming them. I mean, I think, well, I appreciate you talking about that. I, I understand when we suddenly press on our own little spot and it makes us emotional. It just tells us there's something there. But, you know, we started this conversation with the notion of, oh, it's meant to be a gratitude journal. And I think even you describing when I, when something was not present that I wanted to write about right now from today, I would write about my people and that concept, you know, you, you said it perfectly, which is it's a mindfulness practice and not all writing is a mindfulness practice that many people are writing about the thing that happened to them. Mm -hmm. You're talking about integrating into your daily life, the thing that happened or the things that happened, including pausing in the space of love, right? There's all this modern grief theory, which is that's what we're going for. We're going for being able to feel the good and the bad, the end mm -hmm. of it all the time. Mm -hmm. That it's, yes, there's loss, but there isn't just loss. There's also love and attachment. So I just think that you described that really beautifully. And for writers out there, I just, Want, I want you to hear much writing memoir is one way of writing. You can also write a novel about your loss. You can also, but that a, journaling is really about today and this moment and this mm -hmm. time. And, and, you know, what do I want to, what do I want to um, allow my body to get to feel? I always think of it as opening up the doors and I'm going to let those emotions run around and then they're going to maybe come back in or maybe they'll stay here where I kind of left them. And I do, I, I think it's a beautiful description. I think it's really reflective of the, the honesty in your writing. You know, it's, you're just talking about, this is the way it is today. This is the way mm -hmm. that it is. You're not necessarily trying to make a larger, bigger point. And that piece about writing about people that you love, I really, I'm going to hold on to that. And, and I'm going to talk to you again about this because one of the most meaningful therapy sessions I had back early in therapy, I was telling my therapist how important my older brother had been to me growing up as mm -hmm. a, a sort of a mentor and a, someone who could see me and know me. And she said, have you ever told him that? <laughs> and I was, you know, he, he's not that much older than me, but I was, that would be awkward, you know? Mm. And I think the word that we use all the time in grief is awkward, right? It's just awkward. <laughs> it's an awkward thing to do. There's lots of awkward things that we do in our life, but we still do them. And I did, I did write him a note. I did write him a letter. I sat and really was, wow, this is, I mean, this is what love is. Why would I tell my therapist how important he's been and not tell him? And I'm telling you that that was a really transformative, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to speak for him, but it was transformative in my understanding of my relationship with him, mm -hmm. right? I was sort of describing having a great big brother. And then when I wrote it down and said, thank you for this, I don't know where I'd be without it. Mm. It was a totally different, I named it and claimed it differently for myself. And yeah. so that's what I'm thinking about. You know, it's a little thing to say, I'm going to write about the people that I love, but it's, it is a naming and claiming of that love that you create with that person. 
mm-hmm. which is really beautiful. And I think, again, the people that you describe and how you describe them, it's with a lot of love and a lot of grace and a lot of humor, which mm-hmm. is just really, really beautiful. Now you wrote the book a while ago and today is today. Has anything changed in terms of either, you know, are you still writing daily? Do you, do you think about the book differently now than when you began it as a project? Hmm, Interesting question. When I was kind of working through whether or not I was going to try and publish the book, I read a few different books about writing memoirs. And uh, I would say the overarching theme in the ones that I read were sort of, you have to let go of, I don't know, that, that it's okay that the book is for a certain period of time and that you may not feel exactly the same way, you know, years from now or whatever. One of the people that I read gosh, I can't remember her name right now, but she had written about how she just never again reads a book that she's written because she she does only memoir and she's by the time it comes out, I'm in a completely different place. And, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert in Big Magic talks about just once the book goes out into the world, it's not even your book anymore. It belongs to whoever's reading it and they can interpret it however they they wish to, but you just have to sort of let go of it and, you know, try not to refer to it as your, your baby or, you know, something that you're going to be clinging to. But I think in the case of this particular book, it's all really just about love in the end. It is. So I think it holds up. <laughs> so yeah, it's all still there. And yeah. all of the, you know, all of the complicated brew of emotions that are within me are still there. Yeah. And I think what's changed or how I've been changed from writing the book is just really giving myself permission mm-hmm. to know that that's all it all belongs and it's all okay. And we can get angry and we can weep and we can laugh and we can, you know, just so appreciate all of the beauty in the world, you know, all in a single moment. And that doesn't make us crazy people. It just makes us people. Yeah. We contain multitudes, right? I mean, that's the quote there, there, are some references that you've made today about the publishing process, which mm-hmm. feels almost separate from the process of writing. And I really appreciate the answer that you just gave, which is maybe people would assume there's emotional distance in between. I write something, you know, last Saturday and it doesn't necessarily hold up for right now. You know, again, I think one of the gifts of writing a journal entry every single day is that you have a very full emotionally colored and coloring book of all mm-hmm. the different possibilities of what it feels to be, you know, the phrase I would use is, is compound loss and transition. You know, what happens when you're trying to process not just one thing that is really changing who you are and how you feel in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I love hearing that it still holds up. And I mean, as someone who's writing a memoir, I, I love hearing that it still holds up and I appreciate that it still feels emotional because I, I really do. One of the things that I think, you know, in the grief education part of this podcast is just the insistence that people understand that this it's, it's grief is not a problem. It's not a process. It's just a part of us. And there are days that feel windy days where there's a lot of grief just blowing around. And there are things that, you know what, I didn't even know I had the grief right there, but you said that thing and it was pushing on a bruise and suddenly I've got tears in my eyes. And that's just because it's a part of me now. Mm-hmm. It's not a, it's not a pathology. It's not a problem. Yeah. I think one of the things that makes me be able to say, you know, the book still resonates or holds up for me, even though I wrote it, I guess, three years ago, 
is that I just learned that you're going to keep falling into the well. And it's not about getting out of it. It's, it's, it's about knowing that you can get out of it and accepting those nuggets of wisdom or those parts of yourself that are revealed to yourself when you're in the well. And it's not that you think that you're never going to fall into a well again. So dipped in it isn't, you know, this heroine's journey where I go through all those things and I come out, you know, triumphant on the mountaintop. It's the whole, the whole experience, the whole beauty of the story in the end is just acknowledging that it is, you know, maybe there is no mountaintop. It's just, it's all, it all, I said, it all gets to belong. And so I'm not looking at my book and thinking, oh, geez, I've told everyone that I've, you know, cracked the code and I don't have to grieve anymore. And hallelujah. It's just, it's just that life is life and there is no, you know, getting through something and then nothing bad's ever going to happen again. Yeah. I think, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think sometimes, particularly those of us that have been in a lot of therapy where we're learning tools and we're gaining insight, I think sometimes that overlay onto grief implies as though you should then be able to skip the hard parts or have enough tools to not have to, you know, I don't know, call in sick because today's a really bad day. And I think all of that is a misnomer. And again, I think the stories that are in your, that are compiled in the book just sort of show that, right? You're not claiming to be some kind of guru. You are just saying, this is my life and this is what's happened. And of course the stories are specific to you and Mm -hmm. unique in their constellation to you, but they're utterly relatable, which is why people are saying, Hey, you know, me too. Thanks for writing this. This was important Mm -hmm. to me. And I think sometimes people see it as, you know, well, you, did you get enough therapy? Did you do enough? Did you, cause if you did, then maybe you wouldn't be feeling this bad. And what I say to people all the time, I mean, one of my favorite phrases is it was always going to be this way. You know, it was always going to be this way. People are talking to me right now about the holidays, Megan, how do I not be upset over the holidays. I don't know if you can figure that out. You should definitely write a book about it and sell it to people <laughs> because you'll make a lot of money. I mean, I think what it is, is trust yourself to show up for yourself. If you are going to be upset over the holidays, right? So mm-hmm. that mindfulness practice of being able to tolerate your emotions that you describe the writing and the daily journal entering. I mean, that's, that's, the most profound grief work, because what you know is I can take myself day by day. But when people are saying, you know, I just don't want to be upset over the holidays. That's telling me you don't want to feel awkward on a first date. Then don't go (laughs) and don't be a part of that because you can't skip over the natural, you know, upsetting things feel upsetting. (laughs) That's, you know, that's the natural reaction. And I really do think you know, your book really beautifully depicts that whether, whether we want to see it or not, you can't not see that that's the case as you're reading page after page. So tell us a little bit about what it was to, to publish the book, because you and I talked off mic a second ago, um, about your process. And I think it's really important for people who are putting all of their heart and soul onto pages. I, 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 think about this particularly with memoir, because people are telling their own stories of pain, but you know, I have a lot of respect for, I feel every book, every author I've ever read their book, an apology for not appreciating more what it took for them to create this book, because I have a better understanding of that now, but what was your process and what, what was the emotional content of that for you? Ooh, so I went about things differently. You know, I didn't have the idea to write a book and then start writing it or pitch an idea to somebody or anything that it was more, okay, well, here's, here's a book that I wrote. I I accidentally wrote a book. Yeah. Yeah. So I did the, you know, the normal things, queried a bunch of agents and I, I heard back from some 
And what I heard pretty consistently from the one, you know, sometimes you send things out to agents and you never hear from, the, you know, it just kind of goes into the abyss. But the, the couple of people that I did hear back from, it was had to do with, I would get feedback about somebody who is kind of, un, not kind of unknown, completely unknown, such as myself. I think at the time I maybe had a thousand Facebook followers. Now I have maybe 4,000, you know, they're sort of saying to me, you need to have a hundred thousand followers to put out a memoir. That's about basic things, which is, which is interesting, you know, because I have found that people want to connect about all of those things. And about divorce, about loss of a parent, but the the message was sort of everyone's dealing with this. You know, you're you don't it's have this rather extraordinary than totally relatable. Story. Yeah, that that's, that would be an argument for everyone will buy the book, but to them it was, <laughs> but, uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't. So yeah, everyone has to grieve the loss of a parent at some point, unless they happen to die before their parent. But it's you know the natural order of things, and so. I got that message. And then also a few people told me that I should write a book about what it was to have a transgender ex-partner who I was co-parenting with. First of all, I was, okay, well, actually I already wrote a book and that's not what it's about. But I also just feel, I, I felt I'm not in a place to write that book right now. We're very much at least when I was writing this book and pitching it and everything very much in the middle of that process. And I, you know, I wrote about it a little bit in the book, but it's probably five or six pages total or something uh, where I, where I address that issue because it's not really the primary focus of the book, Uh, but it is included in there because there's no way I could write a memoir about that period of time in my life without, without that little small uh, piece being in there as well. So, so I got that as well, you know, transgender stories, more and more people are starting to write their own stories as a transgender person, but there aren't that many books that are written from the perspective of their family members. Right. But I just, again, really felt that's number one, I already wrote a book and that's not what it is. And number two, I'm not the person to write that book right now. Yeah. So so those were kind of the the roadblocks that I was facing. And so I kind of just put it away for a while, stopped querying, thought maybe I don't need to do this. Maybe the only version of this entire book that will exist is in the three ring binder in my aunt's, you know, living room that she's printed <laughs> out every single entry that I wrote for the year. But then there was just a part of me that just, I said, um, earlier, I think, and I don't know if it was before we started recording, but there was just this part of me that needed to see it through. And I just, it was such a, it took up such a big chunk of time in my life. And I poured so much of my heart into it that I thought that if, even if it's just to have this book to give to my children, to say, this is, this is your mother. It felt important. So I, through my friend, my dear friend, um, Monica Rogers, who I wrote about in the book quite a bit, she, she has a podcast and she had had this guest on the podcast who was Brian Haynes, who was starting her um, publishing company. And so she was really more focused on the kind of books that would be written by somebody who was kind of more of a motivational speaker or had some kind of their livelihood was more speaking live and motivating other people. Self-help kind of stuff. Yeah. Nonfiction, but not memoir. Uh, But I listened to her on this podcast and, and, and actually the one that I listened to with her was actually about manifesting. Mm. And so it, it actually, I'm remembering now it didn't have anything to do with publishing, but they were doing a podcast together. And it was one of those moments where I had to pull my car over because I wanted to write down what was being said. And so I had that moment with that podcast. And then she later um, decided to go into publishing. So once I heard that, I was, okay, this is, this is the person. There was a reason why I was so struck by that 
podcast that had absolutely nothing to do with publishing, but now she's starting this company. So I sent her my book and, and she loved it. And she thought, well, okay, I guess I'm doing memoir now. So dipped in it was this only the second book that she ever put out from her new company. And so I think, you know, a lot of people are self-publishing and going on, you know, you can go and do that on Amazon or Ingram Spark. And a lot of people may be able to do that and, and it will work for them. For me, I felt really overwhelmed. I had no idea where to begin and things formatting the book. And there are these beautiful line drawings through the book that I wouldn't have had the idea to do. That was them. They were going to do the cover for me, but actually, I don't know if you know this, but my older daughter, Bo, who's 15, she designed the cover. Is that true? It's yes. so beautiful. Oh my gosh. I yes. love the cover. People are now going to have to go find the book. But it's because they we can't show it to you, but the cover is gorgeous. That's, that's yes. a- I love it. I love it. And I love that she did it. It was, they actually, World Changers gave me a few different ideas for a cover and, you know, they were all fine, but I just had this idea in my head of someone holding a cup of tea and all of the feelings swirling around and I said to Bo, who's an artist, this is my idea that I have for the book cover. See what you can do with it. And we'll throw it in the ring. And, you know, there'll be some other ideas. And I can't guarantee you that if you draw something that that's what we're going to use. And as soon as she did it, we all were just, oh, that's it. That's totally it. So, so that makes it even more precious to me. Yeah. That it's about my family and she designed the cover. But yeah, so anyway, this is my little plug for using a private publisher is that if you feel overwhelmed by that whole process, you know, in the end, they helped me, you know, put the book out into everywhere so you can get it, you know, on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Books A Million, Target, Walmart, all of those things. And then it's available through the Ingram Sparks catalog. So all of the private bookstores can get it. So anyone can walk into a bookstore and ask for it. And the bookstore might not immediately have it. My local ones I'll do, but I'm still working on, you know, making my way out into this. You didn't mention that it did, that it has done really well. It's hit some bestseller. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I, I actually, it was, I, I couldn't even believe it. The first day we, we only launched it on barnesandnoble.com and it hit the bestseller list. So it was up there with the Paper Palace and God. some other, I don't remember what the other book was, but it was, those were the three bestsellers that day. And it was just, I couldn't even God. believe what was happening. It was unreal. So, and even now just, we can go into our local Barnes and Noble and there's my book on the bookshelf and it's yeah yeah I went I actually went today because I had a friend who published a book yesterday and I went to my local indie bookstore and took pictures of it out in the wild (laughs) because it's so exciting do you have your book handy do you want to read us something that you love I I have mine is actually across the room otherwise I'd ask you to specifically but if there's one you know one page or piece that you really Love, I would love for you to entice our listeners hmm. with, with your words. Okay. The other thing I'll say while you're finding it for the group is, so one of the, it's a bit reading short stories. So I, I actually, I read it really fast. I, I started it at night and was, I'm just going to read one more page. I'm just going to read, <laughs> I'm going to read what happens tomorrow. I'm going to read the and then I was super, but, but you could almost a daily devotional, just read a couple of pages each night as you were going to bed, which I really, I really like that sometimes big books that are, you know, daunting because that you got to muddle through them are more than I can do when I'm going to bed, but I'm a bedtime reader. So, yeah, I love that. And I've heard a few people say, you know, in that way, because the, all of the stories are only a page or two pages, it's, they couldn't put it down because it was okay. No, just one more story, just one more story. And so it kind of sucks you in, in that way as well. I am thinking that I want to write, I want to read you kind of the not the introduction, but the first story, because it explains the the title of the book. 
and I'm not sure that I can read it without crying a little bit, but we'll see how it goes. (laughs) What one thing about the book, you know, when you talk about whether, you know, having written it a few years ago and whether picking it up, it still resonates. It's actually very emotional because when I read it, I I go right back there. And so that's kind of can be a little trickier. I don't know. It feels this sort of egotistical thing or something that you would start crying reading your own book, but (laughs) well, I mean, first of all, you're not the, you're not the first person on that, but on this podcast to do that poor Matt Bays who wrote leather and lace. I mean, he was reading it out loud and we were both crying. It's, you know, I think, I think it's a gift to the listeners. And I think this is really what we're trying to do, which is to say, listen, these feelings don't go away. We just learn to carry them. And so one of the ways that we learn to carry them is we put our thoughts and feelings down on a book. And then when someone on a podcast asks us to, or we want to, we can go and pick up those pages and dip back in. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the, Mm -hmm. so, so, so please read crying all the way. If that's what it takes, take this as an invitation with love, that that is very welcome here. And we're grateful. Okay. So this is the first story in the book and it's called dipped in it. My dad used to say, if someone was particularly lucky or blessed, they were dipped in it. If I pulled out some unexpected victory, he'd shake his head with a grin and emphasize each word as he said, Bethany Ann, you are dipped in it. Dipped in what specifically? I had no idea, but in these moments I felt golden. Though one of the humblest men I've ever known, my father always knew he was dipped in it. He would say it about me often too, and I believed him, I was. But am I still? As morning creeps in, I lie here thinking about the past few years of my life. I realize that this breaking open I'm experiencing has been building for years. My father's death was the final blow. I know finding myself here in pieces is an entirely human experience. It is also an entirely uncomfortable one. I am exhausted, steeped in sadness. I am often lonely, even while surrounded by love. How do people do this? How do they feel all of this and survive? I long to find my way back to the person I was before the cracks began to form. I wonder if I could even relate to her anymore. Memory paints her light as a feather. And here I am dragging around my anvil collection. I will my legs over the side of the bed, toes searching for the well-worn cozy shirling of my father's slippers. I look down at this priceless inheritance. Coffee stained with an errant thread threatening to disembowel one slipper with a mere tug. I shoved them into my overnight bag the morning after the funeral, obscuring them beneath a sea of black, as if I would be searched on the way out, as if I'd be caught and shamed for attempting to abscond with a precious family heirloom. In the end, I confessed that I was taking them, feeling a pang of guilt that this revelation came as a statement and not a question. I worried for a moment that my mother would try to pass off to me instead the pristine pair he'd been given days ago for Christmas. I suspect she looked at me and understood that those would never do because these slippers, these warm and messy and perfect slippers were what I needed to arm myself with that morning as I walked out of his house and into a world that was shamelessly carrying on without him. Mm. Two months have passed since that day. And putting my feet into these slippers each morning has become a necessary ritual for me. I am sure he would make a joke about me walking in his shoes. It's really more of a shuffle because they're way too big. That would be funny to him too. His shoes are literally too big for me to fill. I try. Ugh. I I love the shamelessly you know, the world going on shamelessly, how, how dare it. And it dares. That is just really good. Well, it feels that way. Doesn't it? It's how I just remember being in the grocery store and just thinking, I don't know, you feel you're, you're not there or something. And you're just witnessing daily life going on around you and thinking how, how, how is that person? I don't know, going to work and 
carrying on with things. And it's a very strange feeling. Right. Don't they know? Don't they know? The exactly. Right. Don't they know the world is never going to be the same? Yeah. Can I read you one other one? Oh, please. I love it. Um, let's see. I just wanted to read this one because I thought of it a couple of times when we were speaking just about how the book was really written in real time. And, you know, so sometimes I had this triumphant moment and then other times I didn't. And mm-hmm. so I was posting all of these on social media at the time as a, you know, daily, my daily quote unquote gratitude journal. And so there would be some days where on this particular day, I had written something the day before where I quoted this like, you know, blessings card or something that I had. And it was about, you know, let me bless this day and not, you know, not pass it over for a brighter tomorrow or whatever. Yes. And And I was really feeling that in the moment. And And then the next day when I went to go write, I was, you're such a bullshitter. What was that even about? And, and so I did have these moments where it was, I had to find a way to recognize that that, that was grief, you know, but when you're in it, you do kind of sometimes feel a crazy person or a fraud, or why was I laughing about, you know, and I don't know, they're just all of these weird, complicated moments, but this one's called Karate Lobster. I meant what I wrote yesterday about making each today a good day rather than waiting for a better tomorrow to arrive. But today, ironically, I bottomed out hard. This left me feeling a hypocrite, especially after a dear friend texted to say how much she appreciates my advice. She called me wise and wonderful, and I immediately felt a fraud. Then I reminded myself that while I'm writing to help others deal with life and loss, I'm actually writing words of advice to myself. I'm making this up as I go along. Thank you, I texted back to my friend from my hiding spot under my desk where I'd been frantically trying to get a hold of my therapist. Okay, I wasn't actually under my desk, but I thought about it. The truth is I'm much more karate kid than Mr. Miyagi. Wax on, shall we? Dad joke in there. (laughs) in the last 18 months I have dealt with a sudden loss of my father as well as the masculine to feminine metamorphosis of the father of my children I also feel a relentless emotional and physical pull toward my friend Michael a man who is always just out of reach while this isn't as impactful as the aforementioned events I can't help but be influenced by his tides whenever we share the same orbit which is often It is continually and somewhat inexplicably disorienting. Between the man I've lost, the man who is in a sense disappearing before my eyes, and the man who seems to forever leave me wanting, sometimes it feels hard to breathe. The wind has been knocked straight out of me. Today, I have that uncomfortable in my own skin feeling, that wanting to crawl outside of myself feeling. I recognize this particular sensation of discomfort. Recently, I've discovered it has a name, post-traumatic growth syndrome. Perfect, Mm -hmm. right? We often choose the image of a caterpillar morphing into a butterfly as the quintessential metaphor for personal growth. I think this is inaccurate. It implies a linear path from one point to another, a beginning and an end. I don't think we're butterflies. I've given it some thought and I think we're lobsters. Bear with me, I promise it makes sense. In life, we don't just go through one period of personal growth, at least I sure hope not. We have many opportunities to discover and redefine ourselves, often after periods of great struggle, discomfort, and vulnerability, some of which manifest in a desire to crawl out of one's skin, which brings me to the lobster. Many, many times in the life of a lobster, she becomes uncomfortable in her skin. She wants to crawl out of it. She sheds her old hard shell, so she can grow into a new, larger one to expand her being. While the new shell is developing, the lobster is at her most tender. It is a period of great vulnerability. The lobster, we continue to molt over and over again, exposing our tenderness and vulnerability 
until we grow a new and larger shell. Then we wait until it's time to become vulnerable once again. We are forever evolving into iteration after iteration after iteration of ourselves, each with a greater capacity to house our full brilliant selves. Let's not aspire to be butterflies at all. Instead, let's be lobsters. Just gorgeous. Thank you. Oh, it's just gorgeous. And I, and again, I'm sure there are people who are listening who want to throw a book across the room when it says a butterfly. You know, there are certain things that are trite. I, I did see a meme the other day that was, you know, caterpillars melt it, you know, they completely melt and destroy themselves before they become butterflies. And I was, yeah, that feels better to me, but it does. does. Yeah, it does. Right. To know that what's going on inside that little dark cocoon that we can't see is a Holocaust of some kind, but but there, you know, I love, and and again, one of my writing workshop prompts is sometimes that I ask sometimes is what is your metaphor? What's the Mm -hmm. one that works for you? What does it feel? And Generally, what we're talking about is the transformation of shifting energy. And I love the idea of a lobster. I mean, also because a lobster is way down deep in the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. kind of trying to find <laughs> its way around instead of flood, flooding from one peony to another peony. I don't even think that's where butterflies go, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I am really grateful for the readings. Those the I really did just totally love your book. And oh, I am going to put links to everything in the show notes. I will, for people who are listening and with a copy of the book, I always buy multiple copies. So just DM my team and let me know that you would a copy and I'll give them away until they run out. And which is always fun. And and for those of you that are DMing me, if I haven't heard from you before, you might get a couple of other books that I, that I still have (laughs) on hand because I actually forgot to send a couple of books and lost the addresses and things, but that won't happen this time. (laughs) And we, so we'll link everything so that people can follow you on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, pay attention to what you're doing in terms of reading and being on other podcasts and all that stuff. And just best of luck with the book and with the journey and the process. And really thank you so much for being one of those voices that's out there and that is naming things as grief and talking about them with honesty and realness. It's, you know, I'm, I think, I think what you're doing is helping to change, you know, one small voice at a time, helping to change the ethos about grief and loss being something that has to be privately held and kept in the shadows. Thank you. I, I think that there is such a, such an important movement about that right now. And, and there is no better time because literally there haven't been, you know, more people in this collective state of grief, you know, in our lifetimes, at least. Right. And I think it's important just to acknowledge that grief comes in all forms and it's not necessarily because of a death. Well, I heard it defined as a death of something you loved something or someone you loved. So it's not necessarily the loss of a person, but the loss of a job, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a lifestyle of just being, being able to move freely in the world without, you know, being worried about vaccination status and all of that business. We're, we're really in a state of collective grief. And so there, there is no better time to acknowledge that it's valid and there's nothing wrong with you and you can move in and out of it. And it all gets to just be long. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I do, I, I hope that we're beginning to shift the notion that, you know, it's pathological and it's a problem with a person instead of a developmental phase that everyone's going to go through. And we might as well be talking and learning and educating about it because we're all going to need the information. So I, I really encourage people to get your book and to follow you. And I really am grateful. And I just want to say this, you know, I know the days where the tears are really, they're right there, right on the surface, whether it was intentional or not, you just let us be in that day with you, which is, you know, it's real. It's not a problem. It's just the way it is. It's the way we are as humans. And it doesn't mean you need therapy and it doesn't mean you need medication. It means you're a human on the planet with feelings. So I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much for being on today and we will stay connected and just good luck with all, with all the things. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Take care.
You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, everybody. Don't forget, I'm always looking for guests. I'm pretty full up probably through April, but always want to hear people's stories. If there's someone you'd like me to try to get and maybe you have a connection to them, you have a suggestion, or if you'd like to share your own personal story, go over to my website at griefismysidehustle.com. You can hit contact. My team will read those emails. We'll sort through them. We'd love to have you. So again, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to rate us and come back next week. Thanks.